Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Kellen, I'm curious, do you know how many people were on the planet when you were born? If you had to guess, what would you say? I mean, I'm not that old. It can't be that many. Like, I don't know, 6.8 billion. In the year 1990, there was 5.3 billion people on the earth. And it's just come out recently that we are any day now going to hit the 8 billion mark. So in just the last 30 years, that's what, like maybe a 40% increase? Woohoo, growth. And by the way, I just double checked my math. It's actually a 50% growth. So in 30 years, 50% growth rate. No wonder it's starting to feel so crowded. <laughs> Has that been something going through your mind recently that you're feeling crowded out? Well, honestly, yes. My wife and I were on a drive and we were just seeing how many apartment buildings and townhomes and condos are being built in almost every available spot of land that we can see around us. And growing up, those areas were all just open fields. And so, yeah, I mean, it does start to feel a little bit crowded. But I guess I'm not surprised when I think of the research we've done in the past. And, and as I've seen, you know, the hockey stick curve, the exponential curve of just how much our population has been increasing over the last handful of decades. Well, economically speaking, that boom in population has been important, right? We know as the population grows, it creates more workers, it creates more demand for debt and purchasing. And one area and the area that we're going to talk about today in this episode specifically has benefited from the large increase in people, and that is the need for insurance. 
This is a topic that I have seen pop up a lot in conversations about collapse is sort of this idea of what will happen to insurance as collapse progresses. Some people question whether insurance will be a cause of collapse, if insurance will simply be a victim to collapse. Basically, what role is insurance going to play in it all? And I think in some way, the answers may surprise some people. In other ways, it's intuitive. But either way you look at it, I do think that insurance does have a big role to play in our collapsing society over the next several decades. Yeah, I think it is a really important topic to discuss. And by the way, we didn't mention this, but we are recording this episode via Zoom because, Corey, you were sick recently, and I want to make sure I don't catch it. So selfish, man. The audio (laughs) quality of this episode is not going to be as good because you didn't want to get sick. What can I say? The world revolves around me. No, but I going back to what you were saying about the importance of this and how it plays into the conversation around collapse, it is a huge part of it. You know, you think about property insurance, you think about life insurance, you think about health insurance. And if we anticipate that in the coming years and decades, there's going to be more damage and destruction to property than ever, more infectious diseases and negative health impacts from a changing climate and from malnutrition and all of that. And, the, and then one of the definitions of collapse includes a rapid decline in the population. What will that do for life insurance? Right? And insurance is such an ingrained part in the way that our economy works, in the way that we buffer ourselves against risks. And since we are anticipating more and more risks in the future, I think it's really important to understand how this factors in. Yeah, insurance is not a new concept, right? It has been around for centuries and centuries at least in various forms. Today's episode is going to focus primarily on property insurance. Kellen just mentioned some other types of insurance as well. We're definitely going to go into more detail on those in other episodes, and we may touch on them a little bit today, but primarily we'll be talking about property. So to start out, I think it would be good to just have a quick discussion about what insurance actually is. I know that seems kind of silly. It's intuitive to most people. But I think, I think it'd be good to take a look at it from a really simplified view. So to me, and I've never really thought about it this way, insurance is actually a really cool idea from a mutual aid or sort of socialist standpoint in that it's a way for people to be able to mitigate risk by all going in together and creating savings. If there are 10 neighbors that live next to each other and they know that there is a chance that one of their homes will catch on fire, If each one of those people saves up, let's say, $20 a month and puts it aside, whichever one of them is the unlucky one to have their house catch on fire, those funds that they saved up are not going to be enough to pay for it. And it's unlikely that someone else is going to step in and say, here, let me pay for your house. If they all know that they have a risk and each one of them says, we'll pool our money together and we'll all save up $20 a month each, then whichever one of us ends up with that misfortune, that person will be able to rebuild because of the money that we've saved up. Does that make sense? I don't know if that was a really poor way of explaining that. Uh, it makes, yeah, it makes sense. Okay. Basically, it's a way for multiple people to work together to make sure that the risk is mitigated and they're all protecting each other. Now, of course, with capitalism, we've sort of found a way to turn it into a bit of a nightmare. Someone has to get super fat rich off of it. There's arbitrage, excessive fees, you know, unnecessarily rejected claims, you've got a sort of overall sliminess to the industry. 
it's gone from being this great way for people to be able to help each other to corporations taking advantage, being able to make a ton of money. Kellen, I know a little later, you're going to talk about some of the regulations and obstacles that have come with insurance. In the end, insurance is one of those things that you hate to have to pay until you need it, right? And then you love that you have it. And if I can jump in, because it is such an ingrained part in the way that we operate as a society, it ends up being an absolute necessity. Like health insurance, for example, you know, healthcare costs are so high that if you face any sort of a medical issue, which everyone will sooner or later, it's probably going to be completely unaffordable if you don't have some form of insurance. And a lot of that is sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. I don't know if that's the right way to say it. Because of the existence of insurance, it's caused prices of things to become higher because companies know they can charge the insurance companies more. That's something we'll, we'll get into when we cover health insurance in a separate episode. But yes, I mean, if my house burns down, like I am not going to be able to afford to fix that without the help of insurance. Insurance companies all make money pretty much the same way. There's two different things they do. Number one is they charge premiums. So the goal is to make sure that the premiums cost more than the claims that they have to pay out. If you're unfamiliar with insurance, the premium is the amount that you as a customer pay monthly or annually to be insured. And claims are basically the product of insurance. When you have something bad happen, you are asking to be paid out for that. So they make money when the amount of the premiums is higher than their claims. But a lot of people don't know this. The main way they make money is they're investing those premiums in short-term investments like corporate or treasury bonds to earn interest on them while they're holding them. Basically the same thing a bank does. You go to a bank and you make a deposit, the bank's going to use that money to invest it in other things and earn the interest. So the insurance companies want to have as much cash on hand as possible. They want to store that cash away somewhere where they can make an, uh, a return on it. And they're hoping to have to pay as few claims as possible to maximize those profits. And one thing noteworthy there, similar to a bank, they don't have to have all that cash on hand, right? So if 10 of us have each paid $100 to the insurance company, we couldn't go just ask them for that money or, or we couldn't all demand that or have an emergency all at once because they've put that money in other places and invested it in other areas. Yeah, so just like most companies that use their cash for investments, they're going to leverage, right? And in some cases, they're going to over leverage. They're going to use debt to their advantage to be able to make as much of a return as possible. So I think one misconception that a lot of people have about insurance and how it relates to collapse is that they think that insurance is an extremely vulnerable and sort of weak industry. And they think that as climate change continues on, that insurance companies are just going to go insolvent and leave people without insurance everywhere. The truth, though, is that insurance companies are actually much more resilient than that. And the reason is insurance companies actually are insured themselves. So there's something called reinsurance, which is basically insurance for insurance companies. You know, we just went through a minute ago the example of a group of people protecting their homes by going in together against the risk for, of fire. Insurance companies do that same thing. So they basically go in together to protect themselves against unmanageable risks. So in the US, there are over 5,000 different insurance companies. Each one of them 
pays about 10% of the premiums they receive from their customers to a reinsurance company, and that reinsurance company then protects them. So if you're an insurance company in Florida, and all of your homes that you're insuring are on the Florida coast, and a hurricane comes along and destroys them all, there's no way that you're going to be able to just pay out of pocket for all of those people to rebuild. However, because you've been paying a reinsurance company, and so has a thousand other insurance companies in the US, that reinsurance company can back up the cash that you need in order to allow those people to rebuild. By diversifying some of that risk all across the country or across the world, they're building some redundancies and resiliency in the system to keep it from failing. I want to make an important distinction here, and we'll get to this in just a second. I'm not saying that insurance is going to be completely safe through collapse. I'm not saying that insurance isn't going to cause major problems. What I am saying is that the insurance industry itself is very strong. Let me give you a couple numbers here. In 2020, the US insurance industry's net premiums totaled $1.28 trillion. And globally, that was $5 trillion. So again, that's just for the premiums. That's not including any revenue from interest earned on those premiums that they use as investments. The U.S. insurance industry employs nearly 3 million people, and the U.S. insurance industry contributes 3.1% of the country's total GDP. So we're talking about a massive industry here, and I think that this highlights two things. Number one, when an industry becomes this important, it becomes too big to fail in the eyes of the government. The government's not just going to let it fall apart, and it, it'll be bailed out at whatever cost. We've seen this happen in the insurance industry before with companies like AIG. We've seen it happen in similar industries like airlines, and we'll touch back on that point again later. But the point I want to make here, number two, is that with so much money on the line, it's very unlikely that these insurance companies and reinsurance companies are not taking the risks, especially the future risks of climate change, seriously. I think a lot of people look at climate change and they think this is going to catch every insurance company completely off guard. They have no idea what's happening. And all of a sudden, they're just going to fall apart. But in reality, when you're talking about this much money, of course, they are investing, at least many of them, in having the most up-to-date, accurate information as possible in order to be able to calculate the risks and decide what premiums should cost. Yeah, I'm glad you bring that up. It makes me think about when we talked about big data and the fact that people often get this idea in their mind that their data is just sitting in a data warehouse somewhere. It's on a server. And if there was an earthquake in that area, then they would lose all their data. And they forget that there are so many backups and data is being backed up constantly, you know, from one data center to another, to another, to another, which does make the whole system more resilient. Same thing goes with the electrical grid. People think like, oh, it would only take one major natural disaster in an area to totally ruin the entire electrical grid in the United States, for example. But people forget that there's redundancy. And wherever you've got a system with billions and trillions of dollars involved, it's not going to be perfectly protected from any risk, but there are going to be a lot of smart people who are putting their minds and putting a lot of resources toward making sure that system can continue. With all of that in mind, 
there are some major problems with the insurance industry, especially as we move into collapse further and further. And we'll dive deeper into this, but one fact remains, and that is that anytime there's any sort of damage to property, somebody's going to have to pay for it. One thing that insurance companies have been able to do in the past is to look at historical models in order to calculate risk. Right? There's an entire science based on conducting these complicated risk assessments so that insurance companies can continue to make money. But anytime you're forecasting into the future and trying to predict what's going to happen or how much risk is at play, you're going to use historical data in order to do that. That said, when you think about hurricanes and heat waves and you know blizzards, snowstorms, floods, wildfires, all of that is becoming more extreme and more unpredictable than ever before. So you may remember, this is just over the last year or two, there were unexpected floods in like Germany and China. And those caused record numbers of, of insured losses in those regions. The number of US wildfires has risen by 30% over the past decade and a half. I'll read one statement. This is from uh, an article that cites data compiled by a reinsurance company. It's called Swiss Re. It says, in all, insured losses for so-called secondary perils, such as floods and wildfires, rather than more closely modeled perils, such as hurricanes, nearly doubled over the past decade. So that's one problem that we have, that with climate change, the amount of damage that's being done, the, the number of natural disasters, and, and the amount of insured losses are increasing at an extreme rate. As this happens, insurance companies have a couple of paths that they can take if they want to keep making money. Either they can stop insuring people in really high-risk areas, or they can just charge a lot more in their premiums. And both of these things are happening. We'll talk about some specific examples, but insurance premiums are going up and up, which is causing many people to feel like they cannot afford insurance. Corey, you and I recently had our episode on how the most vulnerable uh, are the continually most impacted by collapse. And this is another case in which the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. The rich can afford that buffer that helps them absorb risk, whereas the poor cannot. And if they can't afford insurance, then as bad things happen, they get set back even further. So higher insurance premiums often make insurance unaffordable for customers or customers just buy policies that don't provide as much coverage as they actually need. But even as insurance companies are increasing premiums, there are certain areas that it's just not worth it to these insurance companies to provide insurance in. Here's a statement from one of these articles, and, and we'll include links to these in the episode description. But it says, insurers are pulling out because nobody wants to be in the business of losing money, says Attila Toth, chief executive at specialist risk analytics firm Zesty.ai. And if they don't trust their traditional models, then they are concerned that they will be losing money. So like you just alluded to, it really comes down to the fact that somebody has to pay. And if insurance companies can't afford the costs at their current rates, they are going to increase their rates in order to stay profitable. Or if it becomes unprofitable enough, they're going to leave. But I think this creates some really interesting questions and dilemmas regarding what happens. Because imagine that you're in 
we'll use the example of Florida again. And Florida is just being constantly bombarded by more and more hurricanes at an ever-increasing rate and intensity. The companies keep upping the insurance premiums. And like you said, people over time stop getting that insurance. They can't afford it, or they lower the quality of the insurance. The only companies left that they're getting insurance from at rates they can afford are sleazy sort of companies that, that aren't giving them coverage that they say they're giving them, that type of thing, until eventually the insurance companies say, that's it. We can't stay in business here. We're pulling out of Florida. The thing is, most mortgages that people have require you to always have homeowners insurance and they have clauses in them. Some of those clauses say, if you don't have insurance and you refuse to get insurance, we will get insurance for you and you will pay that in your mortgage. And by the way, it's going to be a lot more expensive than, you, than what normal insurance would be. So rates are already sky high. Now the mortgage company has to go get insurance for you and you're going to pay even higher premiums to the mortgage company. And they say, oh, by the way, if you don't pay that amount, which is now part of your mortgage, you'll get foreclosed on. Mortgage companies, they've got 10, 20, 30 years invested in your home. And so if they don't see a future of protection of that home, of their investment, then they're going to take that home from you and give it to somebody who will. But the problem is, if we're talking about a situation in which it's becoming harder and harder to get insurance in an area like that, what happens? It's a crisis. Again, earlier, we talked about how the government is not going to allow insurance companies to fail necessarily. They're also not going to allow for a crisis of this proportion to take place in an area either. They're going to have to either bail out the banks, they're going to have to bail out the insurance company, or they're going to have to bail out the consumer. This is already taking place. There's something called the National Flood Insurance Program, which is basically a government-subsidized insurance program for flooding across the country. Right now, the NFIP is $24 billion in debt, and it's said to be out of control. Like They don't have control of the situation. It's getting worse. It's a poorly run program, as so often happens with the government. And so you can imagine if they have to continue to expand on government-funded insurance programs, that's only going to worsen. But again, when you think about a government-funded insurance program, what does that mean? If it's government-funded, that means it's taxpayer-funded, which means that it, it comes back onto each one of us. We've talked time and time again about catabolic collapse. The idea that the government is now having to fund to allow people to stay in their homes, not lose their mortgages, so that banks don't go under, so that entire economies don't fall apart, that's taking precious taxpayer money, taking precious resources from other areas that are also going to be in crisis mode and piling it all on in this one area. Now, we're talking about something that's pretty dramatic, but even before reaching that point, individual people will stop getting insurance. You know, you had said there are certain types of insurance that's much cheaper people can get. There's also a lot of types of insurance that aren't required, right? That by law, people don't have to have, so they simply won't pay it. When their property falls victim to flooding or to a fire or something, they're just simply left with the bill or they have to leave. When you consider that 56% of Americans can't cover a $1,000 emergency expense and 60% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck, how are people going to pay for major damages if they don't have adequate insurance? The last thing that I'll mention here, when people think about 
climate migration. I think a lot of people think, oh, like they must live in an area where things are so intense and getting so bad that they are forced out so that they aren't killed by the hurricanes or by the wildfires or the drought. But in reality, what we're talking about here is that people aren't leaving because they're scared of death by the natural disasters around them. People are leaving because they can no longer afford to live in the area. This is what I think the biggest impact that insurance is going to have during collapse is in the movement of people. If insurance companies decide it's no longer affordable to be in this area, and if mortgage companies decide the 30-year outlook of this area is not bright, we can't allow new mortgages here, then people don't have a choice. They simply legally cannot live in that area any longer. They're forced to get up and leave and find a place that's more affordable to them. Climate migration is just as much about economics and money as it is about the actual disasters that are causing them. It's mostly about risk mitigation, not about all-out uninhabitability of an area. Yeah, I think those are such good points. And when you talk about, for example, that national flood insurance program, that's the government trying to step in and fill the gap, right? Where if there aren't very many insurance companies willing to insure homes in a high-risk flood area, the government is trying to make sure people have a way to get insurance. But even that is an extremely flawed system. For example, since that program's inception in 1968, since the start of the National Flood Insurance Program, 1% of homes account for 25% of claims. And in some cases, these homes are being flooded again and again and again. And so this National Flood Insurance Program is having to pay for that over and over and over again. You mentioned that the NFIP is you know, in $24 billion of debt. But in addition to that, $16 billion of debt was canceled by Congress in 2017. So you're saying it was $40 billion, but 16 of that was canceled. They're still struggling with $24 billion in debt. Yeah, that debt just continues to grow, even though they had canceled $16 billion back in 2017. And so you get cases like that, where the government is trying to step in and actually provide a program in which people can be insured. That doesn't seem to work very well. In other cases, I had mentioned to you that, you know, either an insurance company can increase the premiums or they can stop insuring in a certain area. But there are regulations that limit insurance companies' ability to increase premiums beyond a certain amount. And there are other regulations that require them to insure in certain areas. And so, you know, it's hard to feel bad for insurance companies, <laughs> but they do get caught you know, between a rock and a hard place where they, they have to try to balance either meeting these regulations or being able to make money. I'll share something that I found really interesting and it relates to this. And again, this is just a spot where I think it's worded better by an article than what I can say. So it says, in 2012, North Carolina's Coastal Resources Commission studied the risk of sea level rise over the next century and reported that water levels along the coast could rise by as much as 39 inches after coastal property developers realized that their holdings could lose value and become uninsurable in such a scenario. They pressured the state government, which outlawed policies that incorporated the agency's forecast. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
So the article a little bit later comes back to it and says the commission in 2015 came back with another forecast, this one looking only 30 years ahead and finding that waters could rise six to eight inches. The results seemed far more palatable to North Carolinians. <laughs> I don't know if I said that right. So they're basing it based off of uh, what's palatable, not necessarily what's true. It's more about what's convenient. Exactly. And so research comes forward saying this area is going to be uninsurable and all the property developers aren't happy with that. And they, they push on the government to outlaw policies that use that forecast. <laughs> In fact, Stephen Colbert on his show, he's kind of a comedian and he said, I guess he has a, a section of his show called Problem Solved. And he said, if your science gives you a result you don't like, pass a law saying the result is illegal. And he kind of poked fun at what happened here. But it really is ridiculous that we're ignoring the science, we're ignoring the forecasts because people with property there don't want to see the value of it go down or, or see that it becomes uninsurable. Yeah, that is, uh, that's a wild example. And it's so unfortunate because in the end, it's corporations making decisions that will affect individuals. Those corporations that may get hurt when sea levels do rise as much as the original study had said, those corporations may get hurt. They'll likely get some sort of bailout and be fine. And yet all the people who live in those areas are the ones now forced to move. They may have been left with insurance premiums they couldn't afford and therefore weren't covered completely. It's just, uh, it's an unfortunate circumstance. And earlier when I said that, that insurance companies are not as weak as a lot of people think, that's not necessarily a good thing because the strength of those companies simply means that their ability to pass the cost along to us goes you know, un unchanged. Yeah, and to make it even more complicated, we talked about the NFIP. That is administered by FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. And FEMA uses these maps to, to determine and highlight where flood zones are or you know, areas of high risk. The problem is that those maps are often outdated. And we talked before about you know, trying to make policies or make decisions based on forecasts using historical data. But as climate change is happening, we're, we're talking about literally a, a changing climate, right? Where maybe it wasn't a flood zone back in 2007, but it is a flood zone today. And yet policies are being made based on these maps from 2007. So there's a couple of problems with that. One of them is that if you are in a home that's in a flood zone, then there might be a policy in place that says you have to have flood insurance. One risk there is that because you have insurance, you are less inclined to make any sort of preparations on your own. The other risk is that you're not in a flood zone, but in reality you are, right? It's not a declared flood zone, but you're still at high risk of flooding because of climate change. Well, now you think that you're safe and you're also not making any preparations and you're also not purchasing flood insurance. And because of how all of this works, people just continue to build in very high risk areas. One source says about 40% of the US population lives in a coastal county and populations in many of these regions are growing even while sea levels rise. One estimate showed that by 2050, 645,000 homes in California 
will be built in very high wildfire severity zones. And then one additional factor here is what this article says, the value of these properties is likely to rise as well, which in turn raises the bill when a catastrophe strikes. So we mentioned before that U.S. wildfires have risen by 30% over the last 15 years. Corey, if you choose to go build a home in California, you might build in a zone that has been declared as lower risk. The maps don't show it being high risk. However, those maps are outdated and you actually are at high risk. Then you consider the fact that your home is going to continue to increase in value. House prices just keep going up. So as your home increases in value, if there is any damage that happens to your home, you're going to need a much higher level of insurance. And then you factor in the heightened risk, the increased number of wildfires. And basically, we're ending up in a situation where you're at higher risk of there being any damage. That damage, if it happens, is going to be even more costly. And yet it's likely that you aren't adequately insured for that risk because of the way things are zoned. Or if you are, then those premiums are extremely high. Anyways, that's a long way of saying that it's a multifactorial issue and it's complicated and it's messy. So you've mentioned here a few really critical issues within the insurance industry right now. I had mentioned earlier that you know insurance companies are trying to take initiative and make sure that they understand the issues coming with climate change. I know next to nothing about actuary science, right? Which is basically the science behind how they formulate the risk, decide how much premiums need to cost, what are the chances of certain things happening in certain areas. But it seems that when it comes to systemic risk and systemic issues that we've talked about here, I doubt there is a science accurate enough to be able to give you precise risks in certain areas, right? When you look back at the last hundred episodes of this podcast and everything that we've talked about, there are simply too many variables. Climate change is just one of those variables. How many of these other variables are insurance and reinsurance companies looking into when it comes to future vulnerabilities? I mean, in the end, our belief here in the podcast is that there's a 100% chance that insurance is likely not going to stay solvent in the far future. Insurance companies probably don't feel that same way. They'll continue to increase rates as things change. You know, at some point, the system has to break. Who knows when that will be, but the likelihood is that when insurance industry actually goes under, we're going to have plenty of other problems to be dealing with. Insurance is probably going to be one of the least of them. For me, it's the more near future and the impacts that insurance rates are going to have on people, the forced migration that will happen as insurance companies pull out over the next coming decades. Yeah, and you're right that they're using very sophisticated models. They're using AI tools, machine learning to make the most accurate projections that they can and determining all along the way what their percentages of probability are. I mentioned previously that reinsurance company called Swiss Re, a Reuters article makes this comment. It says the reinsurer expects no let up forecasting a 30 to 63% rise in insured losses for all types of natural catastrophes in advanced markets by 2040, which to me is significant. Somewhere between 30 and 63% in insured losses in the next 17 years. Yeah. It then says China, Britain, France, and Germany could 
even see those soaring between 90% and 120%. So as they're making these projections, they're seeing that there's a lot of trouble on the horizon. So they are doing things to try to combat it. Um, insurance companies try to push for policies, you know, to make building codes that will reduce risk for floods or, or increase safety standards. Apparently, some companies are even creating these financial tools that are meant to deal with major catastrophes. One of those is, is called catastrophe bonds for insurance companies. Basically, there are these high yield bonds that only pay out if a certain type of disaster occurs. California is working on a program where they're planning to buy up all these properties at risk of coastal flooding, and they will just rent them out until they are no longer habitable. And all of these things are being put in place to try to, to mitigate the risk. But based on those numbers we cited earlier, it's not going to be enough. And then there's this larger fear that if there are multiple disasters back to back, then it'll have this compounding effect and get worse and worse over time. And that the insurance industry itself could be at risk of collapsing. So on that note, I thought it'd be interesting to share just a couple of examples of major issues that we're seeing with the insurance industry. One of them is in Florida. We've mentioned Florida a couple of times here. Florida is, is facing some real serious issues right now. And it comes from a combination of factors. It's basically fraud risk and storm risk. So something's been happening in Florida where roofing companies will come along and they'll canvas a neighborhood. They'll knock on your door and they'll say, hey, if we can find damage on your roof, then we can work with your insurance company to get you a new roof, a free roof. And you know the homeowner is like, oh, that sounds great. And then they pressure the homeowners into signing a document that says the contractor has the right to file an insurance claim on behalf of the homeowner. So the contractor, the roofer, climbs up there and says, yeah, your roof is a total mess. There's lots of damage up here. You should get to have your insurance company pay for a free roof. But then the claims adjuster from the insurance company comes and looks at it and they say, no, there's not that much damage and that the payout's going to be a lot less than the contractor had said. Well, then the contractor can then go sue the insurance company and demand this larger payout. And the insurance company either has to just pay it out or they have to pay the legal costs to fight the lawsuit. So this whole mess of, of insurance fraud is combined with all these severe storms that have come through. And insurance companies in Florida have faced two consecutive years with net underwriting losses over $1 billion. And as a result, you know, I found an article here that says 16th homeowners insurance company leaves Florida market, cancels all policies citing business risk. So in Florida, the insurance companies are just completely pulling out. In California, the same thing is happening. In this case, it's because of wildfires. Here's a statement that says AIG and Chubb, two major insurance companies are in the process of notifying homeowners that they will not renew some home coverage. The risks and regulations apparently aren't worth the potential profits. Another article talks about some changes. You know, we mentioned the NFIP. They made some changes that they thought would help by making it more costly to have insurance in higher risk areas and less costly to have the insurance in lower risk areas. But here's an article that says hundreds of thousands drop flood insurance as rates rise. 
Records reviewed by the E&E News show that more than 425,000 people have discontinued the coverage they had through FEMA's National Flood Insurance Program since October. And here I've, I've cited these multiple examples of property insurance, homeowners insurance, that is causing an increased amount of risk for homeowners. But we also have other factors at play with other types of insurance. In New York recently, health insurance rate increased an average of 9.7%, or, the, or I guess they will at the beginning of 2023. It's not as high as the health insurers would like it to be, but we see those same kind of economic impacts when it comes to property insurance. Insurance companies want to hike their rates up to keep up with inflation. So you've just given all these examples of basically what you've been talking about happening in the future that it's already happening across the U.S. In some of these places like California or Florida, where companies are leaving, what are the people doing that are remaining there? So if somebody lost their wildfire coverage in California, are they just no longer covered? Yeah. So if I'm with an insurance company that's covering me, let's say for flood insurance or fire insurance, they pull out and decide that they won't insure me anymore, then I am either no longer insured or if I live in a certain zone where it's required for me to be insured with that type of insurance, I have to go find some sort of insurance company that will insure me, but they're only going to do it at a much higher premium. So the end result is people are either not having the insurance they need or they're having to pay much more for it and get it from somewhere else. Yeah, that just feels like the start of exactly what we've been talking about. And again, there's some tricky situations there for government entities, for insurance companies, and for individuals. You might think like, hey, if the price is right, somebody's always going to be willing to insure you. But again, if there are regulations that make it so insurance companies can't increase their rates beyond a given amount, then there's just not going to be very many options available. They'll just leave. Yeah, for sure. Well, you said it best, Kellen. You said there's several tricky situations here. Maybe we should just rename the podcast or tricky situations because that feels like what the future we're heading into is. I hope this hasn't been a boring topic for the listeners. I feel like this is one of those things that's critically important. It's going to have a huge impact in the near future when we think of you know hearing about people leaving the Southwest due to drought, people leaving... California due to wildfires, New Orleans or Florida due to flooding and hurricanes. Much of the reasons for that happening will be because, again, not the fact that the disasters are forcing people out, but that the risk of disaster is forcing insurance companies out, which forces people out. As we've talked through this, I just keep thinking about that disparity between the haves and the have-nots. And as there's kind of a disappearing middle class as the wealth gap continues to widen and you get these people who, you know, some celebrity who has homes in multiple locations, I'm sure it costs a ton to insure all those homes, but they don't care because <laughs> they have the money for it. If one area becomes uncomfortable or there's a lot of risk, then they can either sell that home or hold on to it, but live in one of their other homes. As insurance premiums continue to rise, they can absorb that. And if there are any catastrophes or disasters that take place, any damage to their property, they are going to be covered by the insurance companies, while all those that couldn't afford insurance are going to be left destitute with nothing. 
And so it's the reality of it, but it's frustrating. And again, it's just one more thing. <laughs> We're more than a hundred episodes in and each aspect of collapse that we talk about is connected with the others and makes the situation that much more dire. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.